You could be forgiven for thinking that hanging on to debt, any debt, is a bad thing. When people go into debt, like many do, to attend college, make major purchases, or put a down payment on a home, they're often aiming to pay that debt off as quickly as possible. After all, no investment is worth drowning in interest payments. But those same rules don't apply at the national level. Yes, for as long as countries have been around, their governments have spent money to get ahead, the same way you or I might invest in our education. And in many places, including the U.S., that means decades of adding to the national debt. But federal governments don't need to balance their budgets the way you and I do. In fact, doing so can hold them back. National debt isn't a mark for or against a country. It's a litmus test for that country's resources, influence, values, and economic philosophy. And that's what makes debt so interesting now. After two years of a pandemic, how a country invests in itself explains something about how it sees the future. This is The Court's Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira Bindrim. Today, debt, the price tag on progress. I'm joined now by Nate DiCamillo, who is an economics reporter with Quartz. And before we really get into sort of the history of debt and the implications of national debt, I kind of want to start with my personal experience and, and gut check it with you, Nate, which is when I was growing up, I was very much taught that debt was something to avoid. I didn't get a credit card until my 20s. I made a lot of decisions about college based on my ability to pay off my loans or even go into debt. The idea from my parents was really that you don't do this unless you must. And I'm curious, one, if that is your experience, and two, if you think that mentality kind of infects how we think about debt overall. Absolutely. When I was young, the main goal of me getting through school was that I would get through school without any debt. The idea that kind of looking down on debt is something that exists in all the, the major religions, where debt is seen as this burden, as something that you shouldn't pass down to your children. And it's something that has leaked into our national conversation about debt. We talk about the national debt as if it were like household debt. And we talk about it in terms of needing to balance it, needing to have fiscal responsibility, and using what economists call this household fallacy, this idea that it needs to be balanced like a household budget. I want to start with some basics. And for the purposes of this question, but really for the purposes of this episode, let's assume that I am about a freshman econ comprehension level. Like I took a 101 class, but it was at eight in the morning and I fell asleep for a good number of them. So let's go through our 101 questions in almost like a lightning round format. Okay. Question one. When we talk about consumer debt, like I might have from student loans or from credit cards, and we talk about national debt like a country has, how are they different? The difference is in how long each entity lives. You and I have a limited lifespan and we can only refinance our debt so many times. National government is essentially eternal. They can keep refinancing as much as they like. Next question. Why do we need national debt? Or a better way to ask this would be, what are countries spending money on going into debt for? To go to war, to recover from pandemic, recover from hurricanes, natural disasters, to provide services for the people. So any big outlay of capital is probably going to... Yeah. Okay, next question. Who do countries go into debt to? Other countries, their own government, 
and their own people. Okay. So far, so good. I feel like I'm getting it. It's like I didn't even sleep through that class. How do countries pay off their debts? Generally with tax revenue, the Federal Reserve can lower interest rates as low as they can go so that people spend more so that you can get more tax revenue. You could take down like the debts themselves, the liabilities. So you could like cut spending, try to rein in everywhere that you're spending, or you could try to increase your assets. So you're you're raising taxes on the rich or corporations or raising taxes across the board. They can also do it in other ways, wonky ways. Okay, so there are things that countries can do to manage their debt by virtue of being countries. And there are things that countries can do to manage their debt by virtue of how long they exist because they're countries. I feel like you've just answered the first half, but what levers do they have available to them to manage their debt over a course of time or hundreds of years? Sure, that is something where they can issue new bonds when they want to restructure their debts. When did we learn about bonds? High school? Explain a bond to me. Bonds are essentially loans that the government issues for itself that other people can invest in. Okay, I feel like I'm following so far. Let's let's keep wonking out and let's see how we do. So in some extreme cases, if we ever got to it, the Federal Reserve could buy bonds directly from Treasury. This is something that you might have heard of under a term called quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve buys bonds from the private market, which is essentially money creation. So when we talk about national debt, what I'm hearing is there's a little bit of a difference based on what country you are. Yeah. So when we talk about a country controlling its monetary policy, I'm doing little air quotes here, what does that mean? When it comes to like a country controlling its own monetary policy, it's essentially like when a country is able to control the interest rates on whatever currency it's using. So the United States, the Federal Reserve sets those interest rates on the U.S. dollar, essentially. And if I'm a country like El Salvador, I can't raise the interest rates on the U.S. dollar, even though I'm transacting in dollars. My central bank doesn't have any authority there. So having control of your own currency, having your own monetary policy means that you're allowed to print your way out of a crisis. So maybe you can help me understand this by giving me a few examples of countries that are emblematic of different ends of that spectrum. One with a high level of control, and then one that is an example of where a country might be controlled by its debt because it doesn't actually have as, as many levers. The one probably with the most control over its currency is the United States. Because the United States is the world reserve currency, and it's able to set its own monetary policy, it has a lot of leeway in terms of how much debt it can issue. On the opposite end of that, it was Greece during its debt crisis. It owed the majority of its debt in euros. So when it tried to issue bonds in drachma, its national currency, it couldn't pay off those debts. So the value of your country's currency is going to impact your ability to pay off debts that are in another currency. And then that in and of itself is going to control what you can do, what you're willing to do with your national debt. Absolutely. How do we measure debt? Is it just the big number of money that's owed? So that that is what people generally think. Uh, this is the headlines that flash when the big number, the whole number, crosses some sort of threshold. That number is not super useful because it doesn't fully capture how well a country could pay off its liabilities in a given moment. The other stat that economists look at is debt to GDP ratio. 
So that's essentially like the percentage of your GDP that your debt makes up. But in terms of our year to year, like being able to run countries and manage them, most important statistic is in debt servicing, specifically the cost of interest on your debt and the principal of your debt that's owed that year. So whatever bonds have matured that year or the interest on those bonds. So if I am a million dollars in debt personally, that's going to look bad on paper. It <laughs> probably shouldn't be a million dollars debt. But surprise, I make $2 million a year. Right. Now my debt to GDP ratio, debt to salary ratio, let's say, yeah. um, is different. And that changes things. And if that uh, million dollars, I actually owe 250000 of it each year for the next four years, that's going to be very different than if I owe $10,000 every year for the next bajillion years. So all of that nuance gets a little bit lost when you're just looking at the 30 trillion if you're talking about the US <laughs> national debt, but is actually really relevant to whether a country can sustain its debt levels. Right. I completely agree with you, Kara, that like when people show up with signs that say this is the the whole number, the national debt and whatnot, and this is how much your family owes, it's completely disingenuous. That is not how much your family owes. The debt is spread out over a certain period of time. And what those families owe is the part of debt servicing that makes up our national budget. The only circumstance in which that would be fair, right, is if every person or entity that we owe money to right now called in that debt for right, right now, then yes, every family would have to pay $700 or whatever that number yeah, is. But it, yeah. yeah, essentially everyone at once in the world would have to lose faith in your government and the trustworthiness of your government. To help me understand a little bit better how different countries deal with their national debts, maybe you could give me a couple of examples that are emblematic of different positions from a national debt standpoint. Let's start with Liechtenstein, which has zero debt because they don't run an army. They have incredibly low business taxes. There are more companies in Liechtenstein than there are people in Liechtenstein. The majority of their labor force comes from Austria and Switzerland and Germany. People commute in, and then they leave. Liechtenstein doesn't have to pay their social services. Because of Liechtenstein's ability to profit off of a lot of these workers, of these companies from other places, they're able to bring in a lot more tax revenue than they spend. They don't have a lot of expenditures. The opposite of Liechtenstein in that regard is probably U.S. in that like, we have to fund a massive military and we have to manage taxes as a, as a world leader. Another couple of examples of how debt affects different countries is like Japan. Japan has an aging population that needs bonds to use as an investment vehicle. They need a lot of retirement savings because of their population, so they need a lot of bonds. And their currency is primarily in yen. The complete opposite of them is Greece. During their debt crisis, the majority of their debts were in euros. And when they tried to issue drachma bonds, they couldn't pay off those debts because their debts were in euros. So there's like the no overhead approach. That would be Liechtenstein. <laughs> Just have no <laughs> overhead. And then exactly. You can do there's sort of the have a lot of overhead but have a lot of revenue <laughs> approach. So try and balance those things. Yeah. And then there's the control element, have whatever level of overhead you need, but have enough control over your debt and your currency that you can deal with it. Yeah, exactly. One of the questions this is making me think is, 
are there long-term downsides to running a balanced budget, which is sort of counterintuitive? And it sounds like the answer is, yeah, there definitely can be. Yeah. You can cause the social services to run out. You can cause your country to run behind in terms of new technologies for your people. Your infrastructure can run down. There are all sorts of bad things that can come out of austerity. Let's flip. So we just talked about the long-term downsides of a balanced budget or potential downsides of a balanced budget. What are the long-term downsides of holding high levels of debt for a long period of time? And let's assume here that we are not talking about countries that are sort of beholden to currency considerations, but we're talking about the U.S. or countries that theoretically you know, have as much power as one can have in this situation. Is there a downside to keeping a really high level of national debt for a long period? I think the main downside is what happens, again, to your debt servicing costs if they become too large a uh, part of your budget. If you're a smaller country and your debt is primarily because another wealthier country loaned you something, then that wealthy country, which many of the developed economies have done this to developing economies, can lord that over you. So that's a dangerous game. But if you're like the richest nation in the world, like the U.S., it's just the debt servicing costs you keep an eye on. So it goes back to that sort of, I owe a million dollars, I make $2 million analogy. You need to be thinking about your revenues. You need to think about your control over your debt servicing, how onerous it's going to be, your control over your currency. All of that would inform a country's decision about what it's willing to go into debt for, but probably more importantly, how much debt. Exactly. And I think one of the major misconceptions of today's age and how we look at debt is what we consider to be revenue. People have such a narrow view of what revenue is. It's just taxes. When revenue is, in fact, what comes out of the long-term investments that we make. After the break, debt gets political. I feel like we've laid a good groundwork for the nuance that goes into the national debt conversation. And what's so interesting is, especially in the U.S., but I have to imagine elsewhere, the actual national debt conversation does not have a lot of nuance. It is sort of a high national debt is bad, period. And depending on, you know, which side of the political aisle is arguing with the other, either can kind of take up that mantle. So I want to talk about that conversation. What are the different schools of thought, I don't mean political thought, more economic thought, on national debt? So generally, I think of this in terms of mainstream economics, there's like two schools of thought that pervade our society. One is New Keynesianism, which is very much focused on spending during times of recession when interest rates are low and there's lots of access to cheap capital. So John Maynard Keynes was a big figure in economics, uh, economist who really helped us understand that economies might not be so much constrained by the number of dollars in the economy, but by the resources that it has, just the real resources that it has to produce things. And on the flip side of that, there are the post-Keynesians or some heterodox schools of thoughts like modern monetary theory, where there is a feeling that you can spend any time whether you're in a recession or whether you're in rapid growth, and that you should try to employ certain governmental accounting maneuvers, like the Federal Reserve buying bonds directly from Treasury, in order to manage inflation. So one school of thought is kind of opportunistic, like when there are moments 
that everything gets cheaper, that's the time to really invest because you get the benefit of investing and also everything's cheap. And the other school of thought is you have a lot of tools at your disposal as a country to manage your own debt. So you might as well just go hard and yeah, <laughs> like let's, just, let's go and have the government play a larger role in the market and in our lives in terms of deciding how the economy looks. So it doesn't sound like the economic disagreement between those two schools of thought is about which things are worth going into debt over, given their likelihood to contribute to GDP, yeah. versus what debt level is appropriate considering the state of the economy and a country's autonomy in terms of its monetary policy. Is that right? Yeah. It has to do with, like, what are the economic conditions that we're seeing right now? And is that debate about which things are worth going into debt over, it seems like that's where politics comes in. Definitely. So then you begin to ask, what is our deficit spending? What is it geared towards? And what does that actually produce for us? So wars in other countries doesn't produce a lot for us, generally. Investments in healthcare, in education, in social services here at home generally have a really, really high yield. Given the many decades of history we have to look at that, like what did we invest and what did we go into debt for and what did it produce for us in terms of GDP? Why is it still so political? Or I guess when did the conversation about national debt, and maybe this is mainly a, a U.S. thing, become so politicized? I think that in a sense, debt has always been political. In some ways, the ability to issue debt does kind of signify that you're a sovereign nation state with its own agency. I think that in terms of like our current state of how do we feel about debt now, I think that there's been a lot of propaganda that tells people that when we enter into economic hard times, that it's because of this or that boogeyman. And debt operates in the same way in terms of it's one of these things that politicians like to, to drag out when they see the government doing things that they don't want it to do. Is the debate about national debt the loudest in countries that have the most of it or the the largest national debts? I mean, to my knowledge, no one's yelling about debt in Japan or in South Korea. Whether or not you have a really high level of debt doesn't really dictate how people talk about debt. Really, what dictates the way people talk about debt is whether or not times are good. Can I get a job? Am I getting a raise? What's the price of gas? Those types of things. To that end, like, I'm curious because in the U.S. it is discussed a lot and it is sort of this political cudgel on either side. But do people, do average people care a lot about national debt? I know that the concern about debt among Americans is dropping, but it's definitely still there. Like, for instance, in 2020, the share of Americans who were concerned about the federal budget deficit, which is basically when we're spending more than we're taking in dropped below 50% for the first time. And that is kind of representative of people realizing, especially in times of crisis, it's really necessary to spend more than you're taking in in order to kickstart economic activity. But to your point, it sounds like as an abstract concept, a lot of people do not on the daily think about the national debt as something they need to worry about as they shouldn't because it is not the same as you know your credit card bill or, or whatever. But when the economy is struggling in a macro sense, and especially when people start to feel it in their lives or think they're going to, the national debt then becomes this bigger symbol either of now is the time to spend money because I'm feeling it in my wallet, 
but almost a little bit at the same time. Now is the time not to spend money because yeah. the economy is in trouble. And that tension is part of what gets fed into the politics. Totally. The only person that I think thinks about the national debt every day is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin because he has an aide text it to him. That's sad. <laughs> it is sad. Joe, get like a haiku or like a, a motivational saying texted to the national debt. That's It's not it. And it's also a good example of thinking about something in this really micro way that is not micro. Like, even if you have very strong opinions about the national debt, the day-to-day fluctuations cannot yeah. be that important. No, if anything, just text me the, the cost of debt servicing or right. something. Yeah, we'll text you. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Okay, so to that end, we have been talking in the abstract a fair bit, and I kind of want to come back to the present and where debt intersects with some of the stuff that's happening now or has happened in the last few years, because we're talking about when people tend to stress out is when things are uncertain. How has the pandemic affected national debts, both in overall amount, which I have to assume is going up because countries are investing in preventing collapse, and in what countries are going into debt to do? In other words, the things that you might... Uh, invest in in the middle of a pandemic when the economy is shut down are quite different than things you might invest in otherwise. So the important context for this is we'd already been in a surge of borrowing before the pandemic. In the past two decades, several countries, the US, UK, Italy, Spain had seen their debt to GDP ratios go over 100%. For global debt in 2020, that rose as a percentage of GDP. So the Debt-to-GDP ratio increased by 30 percentage points to 263% of GDP for the entire world. Uh, In some cases, like the U.S. sent direct checks to households, whereas the EU, they paid businesses to put workers on furlough. And then there was the emergency spending uh, in terms of vaccine distribution, testing, and that sort of thing. Is that an example where the things that we are going into debt to do are actually not necessarily going to be directly correlated to an increase in GDP or revenue versus just a not utter fall off in those things? Basically, it's keeping us from cratering even further. It also keeps us from, especially in those cases, losing more people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about the economy, especially in the pandemic, The best economic policy was to try to get rid of COVID as quickly as possible and to slow the spread of COVID just because when lots of people die, that is a lot less people being able to start businesses, have families, be happy, spend. Yeah. A pandemic is a good reason to go into more debt, but not an ideal reason in terms of the normal things that you Exactly. Yeah. I'm interested in this framework we're circling around, which is that you should go into debt national debt for things that are likely to boost GDP, which makes sense. From that perspective, to your mind, is there anything that is being underinvested in by countries? There are a ton of things that the U.S. underinvests in. Also the EU, but not to the same extent. In terms of just like thinking about just this past couple of years during the pandemic, like you had mentioned, like the U.S. passed bills to help ease the pain of the pandemic and try to help save lives. But like when it came to the more transformational stuff that President Joe Biden wanted to then go and increase our spending on critical pieces of technology like semiconductors or biotechnology or artificial intelligence, like we've slowed on passing those bills. We've slowed on passing a bill to go and address the ever accelerating climate crisis. 
We've also failed to expand healthcare services in the United States. So there's a whole host of things that really hit home during this pandemic. And the fact that we come out of it without any change in our healthcare system is kind of pathetic. It reminds me of the comparison we were making at the beginning, which it almost sounds like countries fall into the trap of thinking like individuals, which is I'm using my national debt to deal with immediate crises to sort of finance things that I need to in the short term. And I am not thinking that I am a country that will exist for hundreds of years. Yes. <laughs> and my investments or the things that I'm going into debt for should reflect that vision and that trajectory. Yes. So let's take that same framework. National debt is valuable when it's something that will likely boost GDP over time. Are there any debt fears that you think are actually quite valid? With as low as interest rates are right now? No. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> so. There's a lot of wonk in everything that we've just talked about, which is fine, and I've learned so much. But if you had to give people one thing to come away from this episode with to understand about national debt, what would it be? To no longer think about it like you think about your credit card debt. To no longer like attach it to this idea of it needing to be balanced in some sort of way in which everything cancels out. And to see it as a powerful tool that the state can use to help people. Okay, let's end on a fun note. I have one more question for you, and it is a series of words I have never said in this exact order. What is your favorite fun fact about debt <laughs> as you got into this subject? What is something that you find that you, you can't stop thinking about? Probably the trillion dollar coin, Go which on. is essentially the U.S. Mint uh, does have like the constitutional authority to mint a trillion dollar coin to wipe out debt. It feels like a Nicolas Cage National Treasure type movie that he would have to like find the coin or someone would steal the coin. Yeah. Yeah. Would it be very large? Would it be like the world's largest chocolate chip cookie? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should be. Thank you, Nate. This was super uh, wonky and fascinating. Thank you, Kara. That's our obsession for the week. This episode was produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake, and our executive producer is Alex Osla. The theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sukira. Special thanks to Nate DiCamillo in New York. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Call in your debts and get them listening. Then head to qz.com obsession to sign up for Course's weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories. 